0: Welcome to another edition of Hunter Gatherers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson Stories. We are live at the 10th, and supposedly last, Gonzo Fest here in Louisville, Kentucky. And as always, I'm Christopher Tidmore, joined by the producer, founder, and grand poobah of our show. Curtis Robinson. Yes. And we have the special guest to end all special guests of all time.
1: Yes, we do. We have none other than the lady herself, uh, Margaret Harrell, is with us. Am I pronouncing Harrell correctly?
2: It depends. Some people say Harold. If you're from Israel, you say Harrell, because it is a Jewish word. I didn't know that.
1: Truly, truly a woman of the world. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. It's good to have you here. Pleased and uh, very honored. The uh, oh well. Stay calm. Let's well, stay calm. <laughs> she is the author of many books. The one that brought her to, to my attention, the attention of many others, is called Keep This Quiet it has uh, her relationship with hunter s thompson hunter s thompson's in all caps and then there's a couple other minor writers that that's there and and i'll let you uh, it's a memoir and you were i think you started out when you st- you were one of hunter's editors and here you've been on the panel because the book you worked on with hunter was the hell's angels book his first book yes. and tell us when that was and and when you met hunter
2: well, it was so so long ago that most of your audience won't even <laughs> recognize the year. I worked with Hunter in 1966 and 19 well, really 1966. Hell's Angels was published in January 67.
1: Hell's Angels that came out that year, there were at least four. And I would challenge anyone to name any of the other ones. So congratulations, you and Hunter had the breakthrough book.
2: Well, being, yeah, being that it was Hunter, you know, he was a lucky guy and he was a very, very gifted guy. And he went on a book tour all over. So Random House put a
0: lot into into But the circumstances of you working with Hunter were a little bit different than pretty much every other author. Very. You started off as a copy editor at Random House, eventually became assistant editor. And part of that had to do with the fact that every author had to come in to the office. Every author, that is. But Hunter S. Thompson. Correct. Can you explain why?
2: Basically, because he was Hunter. That's the only reason. So Jim Silberman, the senior editor, went out to California to meet Hunter. He knew that he was a good writer based on The Nation's Story, an article that he wrote about the angels. But he didn't know if he could write a whole book. That's the thing about an author when you get just a little bit of his work. Jim explained to me, can he do be can he make that into a whole book? So he went out to collect copies of chapters from him and see what he had there. And of course he met Hunter in person and got an impression of him. I think that's why he didn't bring him into the office because the tradition was every single author, be it John Irving, be it Truman Capote, whoever it was, be it William Faulkner, they would come into the office and in our case William Faulkner was gone, but but uh, John Irving or John anyone, Irving come in, didn't you? Yeah, of course he did. He, he said, bring her, send her up to New Hampshire, but they wouldn't do it. But with Hunter, I think he got the impression it would be no use bringing Hunter in. He wouldn't work under those conditions.
0: And so you begin a series of not only letters, but long-distance phone calls, which was headlessly expensive at the time.
2: Yes. So the first letter, trying to put things together, I assume that Hunter didn't realize there was a copy-editing stage. And so when we sent them a copy-edited manuscript with very delicately penciled marks in it to him, in uh, he, he, you know, he wrote back August 31st, and he was outraged. Just two sentences. He was outraged that his text was being worked on. You know, how dare this happen? And so I got this, and it had never happened before. I had this marvelous relationship with all the authors, um, be it Dick Farina, complicated guy, or anything. And so I went up to Jim's office, and I must have showed him this letter, and he said, well, probably you'll have to do it by telephone. So I phoned Hunter, and we were pals from then on. We got along beautifully.
0: And if you're hearing a lot of cheering in the background, folks, it's be- it is not because they are cheering our podcast. The poetry demonstrations are going on here at Gonzo Fest and people are on stage. But it should be cheering because you got Hunter <laughs> to do things as an author that, frankly, Hunter didn't know he was able to do. In fact, you guys became very close.
2: We became very close. There was a real affinity. And we both loved words, you know. And he, had a, he read everything in sight. And, we, and I had just come out of Columbia graduate school in literature, contemporary literature, so we could talk. I'm not the only one. Other friends like William Kennedy, Rosalie Sorrells, they talk about how Hunter had read everything. And we like to quote, I like to quote. Yeah, we, we became very close.
0: So tell me about how the letters progressed, because you and Hunter... And your friendship and your relationship eventually would take on a a, a sort of foil relationship. I think you've described it as Hunter needed a foil to be Hunter at his best. Curtis, you've sort of talked about that as well.
1: Yes, there had to be a nemesis, and an editor was always a good nemesis. <laughs> and I was, I was kind of, I'm kind of curious looking at some of the things that you're. And we should say that you have a new book out that is just for people who liked. Uh, it reminded me so much of the Curse of Lono because it has so, it's so graphic as a book. You, you include so many exact replicas of the top scripts and things and the letters and the handwritten notes it's just it's a wonderful almost a scrapbooky kind of book and it's just it's just a really quick read why, why did you do that and, and and how did that fit in how does that reflect how you worked with hunter
2: well ron white would cause it a collage i held to the idea that there's no copy of these letters anywhere in fact when i confronted doug brinkley who was at the time the literary executor of the Hunter Thompson estate, when I confronted him that I had these letters, he who had worked on the letters didn't know they existed. So I gather from that that they they didn't, somehow there was no copy or the copy was by someone destroyed or whatever. So I had the only copy. And it's a wonder they survived because I kept them in a storage that had fire ants at one point. But they totally, perfectly survived and um so what was the question
1: <laughs> how, how does your current book reflect how you worked with hunter
2: um it it captured everything later when i after hunter died was the first time i wanted to make these letters public and when i went back and looked at them they were like a chronology of my life at that period at that point hunter recorded everything and i was respond- we were writing back and forth in that period basically 1966 to 73 but primarily 1966 to 70 when i got married and he was recording everything that was going on in in big important moments in his life he, he would i would be one of the first to know about it and get his initial impression before it got recorded publicly so i wanted to i thought i loved these letters they're so funny and they tell a story they tell how hard it was for him to get um the book through publication and so on they are they are him struggling to get money complaining going through me to get to jim silberman who was his senior editor and so i was also a foil i mean he used me to get through to to complain to me and scream and shout to get to jim so the letters documented they were funny they were agonizing they were true and they were the young hunter and i did not want to paraphrase or in any i i have a hundred illustrations in color and I wanted to put Paul Krasner and other people who were part, Oscar kosker other people I communicated with who were writing me funny, funny, funny things and funny little doodles and um, logos. I wanted all that down in a beautiful color um, book, a coffee and, table. And
0: it's a beautiful coffee table book that goes through it. It's an accoutrement to any author's area. But I, also the letters have told me a lot of people who have read the book said... You know, what this reveals, because it's Hunter's own words, after all, it, it's your words. to What it reveals is that you were more than his foil, you were his muse, Margaret.
2: <laughs> thank you so much. That's so sweet. I didn't know, I, I'm getting chills. Thank you. Well, thank you. I, I guess that's true. That's true. He would go back to me. Um, well, okay, I will say something once I called him out of the blue in 1984 I was on the road on the way to Switzerland and I was in New York overnight and somebody answered the phone probably De- Deborah Fuller and she said oh he'd want to talk to you I'll get him to call back so he called back at midnight of course and we talked for an hour probably two hours and he said your ears must have been burning because we've been talking, I've been talking about you and Doug Brinkley also told me he talked about me I don't usually say this, but he said, he had a, I think he had a crush on you, and he was talking about right before Hunter died, so yeah, we had a sort of intangible bond, and I, I liked, I was very, I don't know, you could confide in me, I guess you say, and I was very feminine for that purpose, so it just fitted.
0: Kurt, it looked like Curtis was going to say something hence that pause <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll,
1: I'll, I'll, I, I love I love the part and keep this quiet where you walk through when Hunter finally came to the office he came to New York and you knew you knew that he did not his mental image of you this was in the days before
0: there are no zoom uh, calls.
1: Uh, that he 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 was he was not about to meet the woman that he thought he was going to meet as his editor in New York and do you do you remember that 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 part of it and you and you and you you were pretty fired up for that and it's it's a very amusing part of that book
0: well can you tell us about it
2: it happened in two phases the first phase was that his lawyer. He thought You know, there were no images, no pictures. He talked to a voice. And the thing about Hunter, all those phone calls, he was talking to a voice. But the thing about Hunter is he liked a soothing voice, and I had a soothing voice. He told me that. He was surrounded by a lot of chaos, and he liked action. But he also liked to come back to something soothing, like his nature background. And so, coming to my office... First of all, he got the first clue that I wasn't an old lady, (laughs) which I could have been. He got the first clue when his lawyer came to New York bringing required documents for Random House lawyers. And his lawyer was expecting this old lady, and he found me, who was three years younger than Hunter, and I had long red hair, kind of a Veronica Lake style, if anybody remembers that over one side of my part parted on one side long draping over my eyes sort of red red hair and i took that i took uh um, modern dance i had dancers legs and i walked. margaret
0: let, let me let me just articulate it yeah even at this age you're hot so <laughs> it could uh, making a lady blush but the fact is to use a euphemism you were a dish
2: um thank you so much <laughs> Um, the very great compliment when I called William Kennedy up for, to get to try to find someone for the for the keep this quiet, he gave me this marvelous compliment. He said, "I thought you could have been a movie star." I couldn't believe it. You don't know things like that about yourself at the time, but so anyway, I led this lawyer up the stairs and. Showing off, you know, my legs. (laughs) Anyway, he went back and gave some kind of description to Hunter to prepare him. But it was only a a verbal description and not a picture. And he could have been putting Hunter on for all Hunter knew. But Hunter came to New York kind of nervous about the whole thing because he didn't know what I looked like yet. But he knew we had a connection now. He already knew it. And now he knew that the connection was not with an old lady, but with someone young. And so he was nervous. He told me that in advance. And he and, and anyway, so he arrived at the office, and he was bringing a, uh, this sort of shaving kit. And Jim Silberman came down, the, the senior editor, and he poked his head around the door, and he, he said, Margaret, I, I have someone to, to present to you. And Hunter came in, and I didn't know he was so tall. He was like six feet three or four. He was really tall, and I was short. I was like five three. And he came in, and, and honest to goodness, we were both nervous. I was so shy, and he opened the shaving kit to break the um, the nervousness, and he pulled out two Ballantine beers. Now this is in my office, and he gave one to me, one to him, and not to Jim. And so we both opened it. And the, the, then he asked me to go with him backstage to, to tell the truth that night because he had to be on a panel, and he was a little nervous about that. The, no, it was, Who is the Real Hunter S. Thompson? What is, is that the name of the show? Anyway, he was on that panel show. And uh, it was who was the real well the real Hunter S. Thompson? Please stand up. And I always thought that was so um, it fit so fitting because people later wanted confused who is the real Hunter S. Thompson? The public one, the private one. He was a marvelous person if you knew him in private.
0: And you are one of the few people. You both are because you were so both so very close. Curtis and Margaret to Hunter, you. But you, let's just face it. Someone who is sort of a romantic ideal to a to a writer is going to understand that writer better than most. And when that person happens to be their copy editor and their editor, you you got an insight into the man that, frankly, I don't know anyone is, including his other editors, including Jim and others. So. Um. What did you?
2: I you see that at one point, uh, Ralph Steadman said something about not understanding Hunter. I don't know. It may have been a passing remark. And I thought, oh, but he. I and also Rosalie Sorrell, She said the same thing, same thing as me. When you met Hunter, to her and to me, instantly he was like an old friend. So I had this, especially after all those late-night phone calls, which I I was so happy. He would call me at like 11 p.m. He was kind of respectful, 11 p.m., which is early for him because he was in uh, three hours earlier over in San Francisco. But I had had a lot of contact with him, and so... Exactly. What is the nuance I'm getting to?
0: Well, it's basically what did you perceive that other people have told you?
2: I I always come back to how he had a a, he he took things inside as well. I myself, when I look at his face, like in in the early on when he's with the angel, and he's you can see on the internet the old show, the old video of himself coming in with the angel. And they are talking and laughing and making jokes about how he got stomped. What I see is him looking inside and amusement and, and processing the whole thing. and having, But he doesn't speak about it. But I watch him being, being looking inside and taking it all in. Like, I think you said Curtis, he could hear everything. All around, from yards and rooms away almost, he could hear, he listened. Well, I saw the same kind of quality as he's taking things in inside, and and not unless you look at his face and know that's what's happening, you don't know that. So I saw the internalized person, too. But he was marvelously fun, and he liked to do pranks. And I kind of, when I think back, I was like his co-conspirator in those days, right before Ralph Stedman. Um, it, because, you know, having the snake in my office and flying out in secret to California where he was on tour and not telling the publishers. We were having these little conspiracies together then. He always had to have someone.
1: I think, I think co-conspirator is a great way to feel when you, when you were hanging out with Hunter. That was, that, that, that's a great way to put it because you're always you know, he had that, that, that ability to engage you. If, if you could keep up. You know, and he did not suffer fools much at all. And I love the the idea of sneaking off to California, which was no easy task. It's not easy now, and it was no not easy then.
2: No, well, um, I arrived at the airport, and Hunter came to pick me up. But we found out, and, and it was funny, we thought we were a secret, but... Selma, she was then Selma Shapiro, she later married Jim Silverman. She phoned, she was his press secretary, press person, publicist. She phoned and she said she wanted to speak to Hunter and they said he was off picking up someone at the airport. She said, "Uh uh-huh, she figured it out right there. She She needed no more clues. But other people didn't know that, you know, we was I was sneaking off and joining him so I was part of his
1: publicity. The, tour. The, so was it generally known after that that you were as they would say an item? Yes,
2: after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they didn't care when I had his snake in my office. They didn't care. The news went upstairs. In fact, at one point, Jim told me, keep him happy. He didn't mean anything nefarious. <laughs> he didn't
1: mean, like, he didn't he mean didn't. that in a no, madman kind of way? <laughs>
2: no, he, he, he just meant, he said, keep him happy. But he knew that he wasn't telling me to do anything nefarious or even romantic. He was just telling me, you know, keep him happy. <laughs> do it, Do whatever he wants, you know.
0: It so just sounds worse the more you explain it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you you had
2: to know Jim. He was a gentleman.
0: All right, I don't know how to phrase this in any particular form. The audience is thinking it. What was it like to love Hunter Thompson?
2: It's the same thing that I said before. It, it, it was being close to the real person, the real presence. It was just very natural. It was unavoidable and natural. You couldn't have stopped it. You know, some things are like that. Before he got to New York, he commented on the electricity and the telephone, and he had never seen me. And it was unavoidable and natural. There was nothing to work at, or it was like it was the most natural thing that had to happen. And it was unforgettable, too. It really marked me. But, I didn't, I mean, he was, or, well, yeah, okay. Well,
0: I'm going to pose something to both of you. as two of the people who knew Hunter almost, almost better than anybody else. in Two very different phases in his life. There's a lot of the Southern gentleman in Hunter. If, if that's the part that people who read the books don't really get. And I never met Hunter. I, I, I just know a lot of people who did, who always used that term, Southern gentleman, courtly, something along those lines. The interesting part about your relationship compared to whenever, as you pointed, Hunter had someone in his life. Was always. that <laughs> always they were always smart. Nita's brilliant. Everyone's brilliant. But you know, Deborah's a genius. But Deborah's wonderful. Exactly. But what was interesting is your relationship started off almost as courtly love. Yeah, because since you didn't see each other, and he didn't really know you were a romantic figure, no. he's probably this kid who thinks you're. Frankly, you have this sort of timeless voice. Yeah, and he probably figures, oh, you're. I don't think maternal is the right word, but probably somebody he would not nah, this kind so of he, maternal. Yeah, maybe, okay. I didn't want to use that euphemism, but it was you were you were providing and protecting for him. You were engaging with him. He could be himself, and that's what makes your relationship different than most of the other relationships in his life because it starts off as a very intense friendship based on work for a journalist and, and prote- for a writer that's everything and, and protection and, and protection
2: yeah no I, he didn't he, he had to trust somebody he was putting his future his reputation into random house and he had to trust somebody and he decided right away after that first uh, really basically phone call he could trust me and so, yeah, that, and he had to, and he could get to to Jim through me. and So, and then eventually later, he was having me practically go to the laundry for him, do every go, put take a poster to somewhere to get fixed, you know, do everything.
1: There was there was
2: a courtly love. I had never thought of that in the beginning.
1: For 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 the the group of people coming in that's a little bit newer, pounding the table right now. I mean. It was the 60s, but you, you knew he was married. You knew he had a family and a life elsewhere. Uh, and you've answered this in print, and I think you do it eloquently, but, but answer it now for people who right now are pounding the table in two ways. One is, you know, Hunter was a married man at the time. And the second part is, and I've seen you sort of address this on the panels, in today's environment, people would say, well, wait a minute, that was an author... There was a power differential, I think is the term of the day. I've never got a whiff of victim from you, and I've tried, and there's just no victim. In you. And so, 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 so address both those things. You, uh,
2: First of all, I, I, I do spiritual work, too. I teach meditation. I honestly don't believe in being a victim. You make your own choices, and everybody has gifts if they can find them. And I believe we're on—I didn't know all this then, of course, but I believe we're on the earth to find out who we are to find our own gifts and look inside. And the experiences you have, you grow from. I had a most horrendous marriage in some ways, but but dazzling and exciting in another. And it made me stronger as a woman. I needed it. I wasn't ready to be that strong before. Hunter made me so much stronger. But Hunter gave me the gifts of memories. I mean, they can never be taken away or diminished. And so... I can't imagine, was he the victim of me? Is, is he? There's, there's no victim. And even Sandy, his wife, to go to that, she wrote me once and she said um, I w- she would like to be my friend. And she said that she used to be jealous and Hunter was jealous and she thought of that as um, a, um, a defect. Now, that really ho- all horrified me i could never have such a relationship where like that open like that it was this was our personal little world where no one else existed if you can imagine it it was like the containers in psychology with a, with a, with a therapist you know you cannot open the container it no longer exists the, the relationship and so i that ended our letters the fact that she wanted to be my friend um, it's very hard to explain. It was the 60s, and it was the 60s, and we did not plan it, neither he nor I. We did not plan it. We, we became close a deep bond, an electrical bond, a spiritual bond, um, gratitude. And when he came to the office, there was no way around it. It was just there. There was no way out of it. Does that make any sense?
1: It doesn't it, it? Particularly, I mean, I'm taking you way out of context. I mean, you, I think people here should say more. Well, read my read my book. <laughs> And you read my book. That's, that's a good that's a good. Keep This there. Quiet.
0: Uh, let me plug the book real quick. The book is Keep This Quiet My Relationship with Hunter S. Thompson and, Kuletsky, and uh, That's and uh, the new book as we will
2: well.
1: So when it comes to
2: uh, <laughs> 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 Amazon, except an e book. So to buy the letters book, the big coffee table book, you have to go to the publisher's website, Norfolk Press, Norfolk Press of San Francisco, or go to my website, MargaretHarrell.com, M A R G garetharrel com, And if you want the big, beautiful coffee table letters book, and you will just watch everything unfold. There's nothing i don't know what else to I, say?
0: I i get that we're also trying to arrange to get it in the garden district bookshop so we'll have it you'll have it oh surprise. yes yes yes, yes. So excuse are, me yeah. no, uh, we don't Loss have it, it yet. we will have it soon so we'll no
2: it. in new orleans we yeah. want to buy it at what's the name of the bookshop? garden district bookshop we want to go to garden we're moving <laughs> the whole process to garden district Bookshop. <laughs> i wouldn't go that far in new orleans years. no but we're gonna i'm have very excited we're gonna have by have going to that bookshop i
0: i when i read the books and There's so much about the work, about the the language, about the poetry, about the adventure, and about the perspectives. So this cheapens that, but it's such a great love story of human hunters in so many ways. I mean, this idea of pillow talk with Hunter S. Thompson is an engaging concept, but it's sort of like, I use the term muse very deliberately because Hunter's at the most crucial point in his career, in my humble but accurate opinion, because he's transitioning from newspaper writer to writing books he's writing the Hell's Angel books he's the Vegas book is coming he's writing a book to write a book and I can tell you as a deadline based journalist doing that is almost Curtis comment on this it's almost trying to retrain your brain and it's how many books do you and I collectively uh, separately and collectively have that we have like have two chapters done and not finished? I mean, I oh, I have 37. Think, yeah, it's like I've got at least a dozen. 37. And it's and it's for a journalist who's writing if you don't have someone who can be your spiritual partner almost in doing that, it's almost impossible to make that transition. It it's and hate to say it, you know, sometimes your spouses don't quite get what's going on. It's not a, I'm not making a moral judgment, don't tell it, somebody says, oh, you're a again. I'm saying that everybody needs somebody who is a literary soulmate, mm-hmm. And that's what I get from reading the book.
2: Thank you so much. I think you're right. <laughs> I think you're right. Thank you so much. So, I, I Hunter and I were both young, unpublished author, um, novelists at the time. I had my big book, and he kept asking about it. And I felt if, a, if I was dating a man and he wasn't interested in my writing, I was just a woman writing, you know, that hurt very much. Not Hunter. He's, he would always ask, how's your big book? And when I went to McDowell Colony and was first getting recommendations, he said, tell me what to say. I'll say anything. I'll recommend you. So I always appreciated how supportive he
0: was. Margaret Harrell, you've, been, you've graced this Gonzo Fest. And I'm, I'm sort of curious... Because there's so much we could, we could literally talk for about four hours on this interview. So we've got to have you back, and Thank uh, you. We'll, we'll go into more detail. Just don't use yeah, me
2: up in one I, time, I will, please. I will, no,
0: no, we, we'll, we'll have you back, folks. But I sort of want to take it. You've come, you've gone to a few a few things for Hunter in the past, but this Gonzo Fest, it, I've been watching it. People have come up to you to talk, sort of touch the hem of your garment, but at the same time, <laughs> I've watched you on stage in these forums, and it's been very interesting to me because. What I've seen is sometimes where you're nodding and sometimes where you sort of look at somebody and say, wait a second, that's not the Hunter I knew. You didn't say it out loud, but I could read it in your face. And I've, I would look at Curtis often at those times and Curtis would sort of like smile and say, yeah. And I'm curious, how does the myth that is developed amongst, say, the Generation Z, the, the children of the millennials, those who are in early 20s right yeah. now, about the age you were when yeah. you met Hunter, how is the myth Sort of separated from the man that you knew at about the same age.
2: Well, but most of the generation those generations don't even know him, do they? Well,
0: what? Y- and I'm, an, I'm an, I, if you look at the age groups at here at Gonzo Fest, here's yeah, you've got people in your generation who knew mm-hmm. Hunter, and then you have a few people that are about my age or younger, fifty to forty, who knew who know a lot of people who know Hunter and have sort of studied it. Mm-hmm. You don't have many people in their thirties or late twenties, but you've had a lot of kids in their early twenties here. Oh, okay. And so, what? I'm, who? Who's only connection to Hunter is they've read the Vegas book, or they really have seen the movie, and that became the gateway drug. Okay. But their perception is very much filtered through Johnny Depp, right? And right. And through that, not, and this, I'm saying this not only as a fan of his work, but as a person of Johnny Depp. My, my question is, what have you heard here that? if you had to articulate where the myth of Hunter is changing, is different from the man in any way, good, bad, indifferent, or just a misperception?
2: No, it's a different question for me. I've begun uh, to understand that people make up their own story about, they they have their own version of things. They have their own angle. And it may, about everything, and it may, in particular with Hunter, it may not fit mine at all. But they're coming, everybody's creative and they come from their own angle, and I try not to forget the person I remember. But I try not to mix it up, mix it together. But I, like I also know that people, if they're if they're speculating intellectually, then it kind of offends me if they go way off base. But if they're like being imaginative, like you know, people, I recently saw a Johnny Cash movie or or um, people, you know, movies. I love the Queen movie because they use the real music, but other times they don't. They just make up their own version and they sing sing the songs, and they don't. And I understood that they want to sing their own version, which is not the original. So the original Hunter, I hold to it, my Hunter. But uh, the, the angles—it's just the way people do these days. They make their angle. And you, and you don't quite want to say anything against that. You don't want to say anything against that. Every, I begin to respect more, that people sort of create <laughs> their version of things. They add something to it. But my hunter, I treasure and hold to without any sort of like mix-up together. What about you, Curtis?
1: Well yeah i i think it's mix and match i think it's a you you pick what you want and it's the persona but uh uh, what i really like about it is the is the thing that that drew me to hunter in the first place the defiance just the 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 reflexive core defiance of things you will not tell me how to talk uh you will not tell me what to do i will live my life my way and that ultimately is is such such a great goal i mean we would now say you'll live with intent and Hunter lived with intent. He, you know, if he didn't want to be where he was, he left. And uh, I guess ultimately in the ultimate fashion. But but that's that's what I like. And I, and I think people get that. And, and how far they want to go down that rabbit hole is up to them. That's the other thing that people have now is they can determine their own depth. They don't have to take... They can take part of it, and or, or they can take all of it. They, they they have so many choices, and they have choices within a choice. If you if you choose to go down, but I can tell you that he he is always prominent among the youth among young people because because that's when you're defiant.
2: I love that word, defiant. And he allowed you you me all of us to be defiant too. He didn't try to. Ta- he, he didn't really like people just fawning over him, you know. Enabler of liked, defiance. He,
1: a total enabler of defiance in every way. A total he was like,
2: enabler of defiance. That's marvelous. Uh, I, that's what I remember.
1: Yeah.
0: Margaret, I have to ask this question because people will write me about this if I don't. You remain close to Hunter for many years after your relationship. And if that relationship ended, you talked to him well into the 80s and 90s. My, my question is, 1970s coming on... He's been writing the Vegas book What happens you get married in nineteen seventy if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I yeah. did. What happens to change the nature of you and Hunter's relationship? Did it start changing or did it fall did you fall in love with your the man who became your husband? How did it happen and how did that affect your friendship?
2: The core of it didn't change the tiniest bit. But the actual I lived in Morocco, so I mean I only talked to him Distance. when I came back into the United States every like for one month I stayed in with my parents every year and we tried to reconnect but you know not in person just like over the phone a bit with letters but the core that's why it was a relationship that I remember forever the core was always there i mean l- like you say you need someone who you know is supporting you i just whether it was imaginary or not i always felt he's he's somebody i can count on and then in the 1990s when 1990 when the person i was living with died and it was, and it was kind of like i was alone and it was kind of like mysterious and there were spooky things who did i call i called hunter and he because he enables like you said defiance and think for yourself hunter you know this is what's going on what do you think he would be the first person that i dared you know like open up like that to so it's there was a core. Nothing changed about it. The core.
0: It's a euphemism, but I say that you know everybody has their person. Their what? Their person. Yeah. It's not only that necessarily their spouse. That doesn't mean we don't love them, but it's their person who sort of understands them, comprehends them, sees their entirety. And it's nice to have had Hunter's person on the air <laughs> with us, <laughs> <laughs> Curtis. Oh, I've
1: got nothing to add to that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> on that note, we're going to do our last in our series of Gonzo Fest remotes. And this is with the organizers of Gonzo Fest, the people who have really put this together, looking back on this incredible weekend. Margaret, it, we're going to have you back many times. So, uh, uh, Thank you, you so much for goodbye doing Goodbye, and thank you. Au revoir, until we meet thank again. Thank you
2: so much, and to your audience, too. Thank you for listening, and thank you so much for honoring me and your very marvelous questions really good questions thank you
0: much see you in the next episode folks
1: well the southern gentleman
2: hit the highway and gave us stories we could share of crooked
1: schemes shattered dreams of people everywhere Road of whiskey screens and motel
2: rooms where no one seemed to care.
0: Road of deep, dark, secret places made us feel that we